Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mark, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Okay, I'm Professor Mark Wheeler of London Metropolitan University, and I'm a Scott Professor of Political Communications. So my interest has historically been looking at the orchestration of the political economy and policymaking within media systems, globalization of communications, the rise of information communication technologies such as the internet or social media. And also I've always had an interest and a passion with regard to the representation of politics in films and also the kind of politicization of Hollywood in terms of its workforce and also looking at Hollywood, I suppose, like what you might describe as a city-state where Hollywood has a number of different dynamics to it, if you think of it politically. So there's first of the kind of the political economy of Hollywood, the industry, as it were, what they do in terms of making a product or a film. And you can look at that and you can say, again, it's gone through several different significant changes, the introduction of sound, the rise of television as a competitive medium, uh, the engagement of video and other ancillary markets in the 1980s, the information communication technology convergence with traditional media at the start of the 21st century. And now we're in its kind of, I suppose, more re most recent phase, which is the streaming of communications, where there's a whole question about what constitutes watching a film now. And also we've seen that Hollywood has been overly controlled by larger corporate organisations. Um, they've got bigger and bigger, but they don't compare to the tech billionaires or trillionaires of Silicon Valley, who are now, of course, entering into the dynamics of film production themselves with regard to companies like Amazon and Apple and others. So there's always been that question about the driving force. And Hollywood, we should remember, is an industry. It's a business. It's also subject to major media and now information technology communications corporations. And also, it's a profit-making organisation. So there's always been this question between arts and commerce and there's these great stories of great filmmakers being brought down by Hollywood like Orson Welles um, but there's also a question we have to remember of course that these people uh, are dependent upon the economic orchestration of the Hollywood film system under whatever guise it will be so there's that dynamic there's what we would describe I suppose the ostensible politics of Hollywood which goes into a number of again subsections so Hollywood's has always been concerned about, as I say, having a voice in Washington. And it orchestrated and developed what was called the Motion Picture Association, or he's called that now. It was went through several titles originally just over 100 years ago with Will Hayes being in charge of that. And it was a very important trade lobbying body and has remained so, not only for Hollywood domestically, but very importantly for its international um, markets as well. So Hollywood has always been a kind of globalised industry. It's always looked beyond its own national territories. So there's always an argument also this is mutually beneficial for the American state because it was argued from every foot of um, film that was exported, you've got a dollar's worth of trade. That was the argument. Um, and Hollywood also is a means for not only just trade, but also a means to actually, I suppose, advertise, I suppose, American values internationally. So that would segue into what might be described as soft power, uh, which was an idea developed by a man called Joseph Nye. And soft power is the politics of attraction. So again, the argument is that Hollywood's, uh, its films, its products, um, 
not just films now because it makes all different types of product as well, uh, provides not only a kind of ostensible notion of American politics, but also a value system internationally. So you've got that side of things. You've also got the side of, I suppose, the industrialization of Hollywood because very quickly it became the fifth largest industry in America at the end of the 1920s, particularly when it took on sound. The production process increased massively in the interwar year periods till 1939, which I think was the key year of the biggest number of productions ever made. And also this led to unionization, which was not a straightforward process because one of the reasons the original moguls uh, who had moved to Hollywood had moved to Los Angeles, it was what was called an open city, had very little trade union values and systems to it which was very effective for them. And also, not only it had that, also it meant that you could employ people, sack people very, very quickly. A lot of that changes in the Great Depression with the introduction of sound, because a lot of people who come to work in Hollywood have come out of the American stage. And New York is a particularly bastion, of course, for left-wing values and whatever. So a lot of the writers are very kind of left-wing. So we see that situation emerging. Um, and... That also provides the conditions, I suppose, of what ultimately becomes the blacklist of the 1940s and 1950s, because there is a huge kind of dispute amongst both left and right wing trade unions about how Hollywood should be run. Uh, there's a grouping particularly coming out of Metro Goldwyn Mayer led by a director called Sam Wood, but also includes people like John Ford and John Wayne for the Motion Picture uh, Association for Preservation of American Ideals, which writes to Congress and demands a congressional inquiry into Hollywood for subversion, particularly communist subversion, although initially the argument is against more left and right-wing subversion. So that segues into what becomes the conditions of the blacklist, which also you have the perfect storm of the end of World War II, the rise of the Cold War, and also a very right-wing Congress as well. And also that the House Committee of Un-American Activities, which had been formed in the 1930s, then becomes a permanent House uh, committee under a very pugnacious chairman called J. Parnell Thomas. So you have those developments, and we can talk about those a bit later, but also you have other ostensible political developments as well. You have um, the sort of political constituencies within Hollywood going from moguls who were very, very right-wing, people like Louis B. Mayer, other moguls who played the game like Jack Warner, who would be Republican on one side and also Democrat on another, and also became a strong affiliate with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And then you have, in that period of time, infamously, Mayer and Irving Thalberg running a campaign against a very left-wing candidate for the governorship of California. Um, and that it leads to um, what's called the... Um, um, it was a, a whole kind of utilization of Hollywood studios to blacken. Um, uh, the name escapes me. We'll get back to it. Um, but anyway, there's that situation. There's also a politics which is related to uh, a celebrity politics, if you like. Um, you mentioned when we we're just talking John F. Kennedy and people like Kennedy had very strong relationships with the kind of Hollywood elite establishment, particularly mediated by people like Frank Sinatra. But in more recent years, we've seen, you know, again, Hollywood celebrities becoming involved in environmental campaigns in terms of also workplace campaigns and also internationalizing their causes, particularly people like Angie Jolly with UNICEF. 
Um, so we've seen that area, which again, I've, I've written a book about what's called celebrity politics. And also, of course, there's the ostensible kind of content of Hollywood films as well, which again, this question about what do they represent in terms of some form of what could be broadly described as public relations, if you like to call it, which Edward Bernays came up with the idea, but also Edward Bernays was utilised in that to sort of mask what's called propaganda. Now, again, there's a whole range of situations. Some people say Hollywood films are very propagandist in terms of American causal values. So you look at particularly the kind of genre films which Hollywood has made, particularly tub pumping for getting involvement in World War II, which it did, particularly when America was still waiting to enjoy World War II. Um, but also there's been other kinds of, you know, sort of genres like Westerns, which again, a man's got to do what a man's got to do, the John Wayne mythology, if you like, uh, constructed by John Ford and Howard Hawks and others. Um, and also, I suppose you would say that those kind of, as I say, those kind of particularly kind of moguls-led kind of ideas led to Hollywood films kind of, as I say, reiterating an American value system. And again, that was in part because the moguls themselves were largely Jewish in terms of their backgrounds. They wanted to assimilate in American culture, but also they had in their folk memory the pogroms, which their parents had and they themselves invariably had escaped from. Uh, and of course, they found that Los Angeles was full of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, prejudice as well. Um, so you have this situation of, um, as I say, these kind of ideas, which you can say you can look at, and particularly in the 1930s, support of New Deal policies, but also in the 1940s, again, support of World War II. But also there was always an undercurrent. I was finding kind of interesting films like film noirs, which provide a much more kind of critical, what soft underbelly of American values. And a lot of them also deal with the returning uh, soldiers, not dealing with what we would now describe as PTSD, but... You know, there was a lot of dislocation going on in American public life at that time as well. You have ostensible American films which deal with politics. Um, some films where, uh, you mentioned J. Edgar Hoover, there was a film called The FBI. Mervyn Leroy made of James Stewart. And again, Jimmy Stewart was also somebody who, um, not, it, was a, it was a very strong patriot to the extent, of course, that he became a major general in the American Air Force in World War II. Um, but also you have, by the time, the films that I find more interesting coming from the mid-1960s really through to the early 1980s, are, are a more critical analysis of American political values. And even the kind of big blockbusters, the films like, particularly like the Godfather films, again, you find a critique of American capitalism within them. Um, Francis Ford Coppola, when he, he first thought the book was appalling, but when he reread it again, he saw that it could be a metaphor for one of the, again, the principal genre types, which is, of course, the crime genre as well. Um, so you get a number of, as I say, what we could be described as auteur filmmakers during that period who start utilising the kind of traditional American genres in a very kind of different kind of way. So you have revisionism in Westerns, you have a revisionism in terms of, as I say, crime films, you have films like Chinatown, for instance, which in the mid-1970s looks at the corruption of the formation of Los Angeles, um, both a kind of personal corruption, but also a more generic rape of the, uh, of the uh, water of rights in Los Angeles as well. So you have those kind of films being made. And I say, 
there's a very interesting period that I would say, which is called this sort of second golden age of Hollywood or the new Hollywood, which emerges and the, in that period of time. And it emerges again because first you've got economic change. The studio system has fallen asunder largely because of television, but also because there was what was called the Paramount Decrees, which changes economic construction as well, which meant it could no longer uh, block book films to, uh, in terms of its orchestration, in terms of film distribution to exhibitors. Um, and also you had also another interesting rise as well. The stars themselves no longer uh, constructed in what was called the star system. So what you start to see is stars developing their own independent production companies like Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas, and others who start making more interesting political films, like Kirk Douglas particularly with Stanley Kubrick's Barbs of Glory. And then he employs Kubrick again in terms of his magnum opus Spartacus. But perhaps more importantly, he employs Dalton Trumbo, uh, the writer of the screenplay, who'd been one of the so-called Hollywood Ten of communists who'd been sent to prison during the blacklisting era. And also you start to see that the old kind of mechanisms start breaking down and you start to see the new generation of Hollywood film stars who often come as the sons and daughters of the old ones, like the Jane and Peter Fonda of Henry Fonda, um, becoming far more radicalised as well and politically radicalised. Now, again, that has implications for both good and bad as well within it as well. So, again, what I'm trying to demonstrate is a kind of broad scope here that you can you can think of in terms of Hollywood and politics and representation of political situations. And it kind of the that ostensible politics also goes into a why and what might describe as cultural politics of Hollywood. Why is Hollywood deemed to be such a liberal bastion now in terms of American popular life? And particularly mobilized by, you know, again seen as seen as woke and everything like that as well. Um, but also, there's also this other situation because Hollywood makes some sometimes incredibly reactionary films as well, you know, and has always done so and continues to do so. So you could hardly accuse someone like Clint Eastwood ever being woke, you know, or Charles Bronson, because there was a whole vigilante phase of filmmaking which took place during the period I'm also talking about as well. I found myself not being able to decipher a real film anymore. All I see is propaganda. I hate to say it like that, but just from learning and kind of like looking at, look at the movie, The Interview, where they tried to assassinate Kim Jong-un. That was paid by the CIA. I had a guy, uh, Matt, Matthew Alford, if you've ever seen his documentary, Theaters of War, they found documentation to prove that. So it was like, for me, I don't know, when I look at films now, it caused me to look deeper into the history of it to see if it was any better today or if it was the same in the past and it seems like there's always been a little bit of propaganda just maybe the sides might have switched or the meanings might have switched but to me what was fascinating oh, I, think is you, you, I think it, things do change i mean that film you talk about of course was pretty disastrous for hollywood wasn't it it was an amazing film though i loved it i never saw it but of course what came out of it was also those extraordinary email and diatribes you know also Various people, you know, the head of Columbia have to go and things like that as well. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, uh, there's definitely a situation. There's, 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 there's been a lot of recently about particularly Hollywood and war films, for instance. And the war film is a very good metaphor for where things stand in American public life. So, you know, if you go back to the history of Hollywood, the first war film, I suppose you would have to say, is Battle uh, of a Nation, which, of course, uh, you know, is D.W. Griffith. Extraordinary film in terms of narrative, but extraordinary in terms of also being extraordinarily racist as well. Um, and then you have, you know, again, uh, you have, again, a number of films like 
All Quiet on the Western Front, one of the early sound films, which again was very, very critical, but of course it was bizarre if they're taking a German perspective of World War I. But also, you mentioned Howard Hughes. I mean, his big mobile, uh, magnum opus was a aircraft war, uh, war film, um, you know, um, called uh, Hell's, the Angels. Hell's Angels. Yeah. And, I mean, that was a film that cost so much money. Though it made an enormous amount of money, Hughes took a huge loss on it. It started off being a silent film, becomes a sound film. He wants to go and film it uh, and with yeah, thousands of airplanes and yeah, he directs all the air, air stuff and up uh, off the ground because the stuff on the ground is pretty awful in it as well. But a few people died making that film too. Lots of people died making lots of films. If you look at the history, Hollywood's had a very kind of laissez-faire responsibility. Uh, Michael Curtiz made a film called Noah's Ark, where it's, I think about a hundred people drowned in it. Jesus. I mean, there's been a history of, I mean, there's people now talk about animal rights and pater and things like that with regard, and there's been some pretty atrocious things happening to horses and westerns and whatever, but there's been, I mean, even Ben Hur, a guy dies in the, you know, in the middle of the chariot race and things like that. So, um, I mean, and again, if you look at, the, the, you know, in a number of films, you would see that some of the risks they've taken, both with um, stars, stuntmen, and, you know, extras, has been quite extraordinary. Yeah, John Wayne died over the Conquest movie. I mean, that's a shit well, the film. The, yeah, well, again, there's several arguments. He he was a, he, he smoked like a chimney as well. Yeah, but there was 91 people on that set that got cancer out of the 224. I mean, look, after one or two, you start being like, we got to move places. You know what I mean? Like, the thing, well, the thing is they did move places, but it gets even worse. They imported a sand from Los Alamos into the Hollywood set they were making the film. So, um, love, yes, it, it's got an extremely high rate of, 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 of I mean, again, I, there's, there's, let's have, I mean, the making the French connection, if you look at that, the, the, you know, the famous car chase between Gene Hackman and the Frenchman, and the, and, it's, and the way that was shot, I mean, they, they had the support of the NYPD and everything, but it was shot live. So, one of the shots they did was actually a sort of, 10 minute shot which was driving at 90 miles an hour through real traffic now again you, you couldn't do that now you, you you there'd be so many permits and controls and whatever that take place but again there's a lots of lots of films you would say my god they took some extraordinary risks but going back to the concept of the war film the war film then becomes a very very different thing particularly in the mid-1960s because you start getting though they're big entertainment war films like the great escape and whatever if you look at the the role of the German, it goes from being a complete Nazi to the, there's the good Germans using the Luftwaffe, something like that. Well, and there's always the bad Germans, there's the ones in the, in the Gestapo or whatever. Um, then you could go into um, Lee Marvin in The Dirty Dozen, where the Germans don't really count. It's Lee Marvin and his various assorted crew of John Cassavetes and others taking on the generals, particularly you know, by the character played by Robert Ryan. And then if you go into the 1970s war films, of course, there's a lot of them, things like MASH. There's even Patton, which can be read. Patton can either be read as a hawk or a dove film. So if you're a dove, you say, my God, this is a madman. And Francis Ford Coppola wrote a screenplay for that and writes him pretty much as a madman as well. However, if you're a hawk like Richard Nixon, he goes and watches the film and escalates into uh, Cambodia the following day. Um, but MASH, um, which is essentially set in the Korean War, Robert Allman's kind of breakthrough film. By the end of the 1970s, when they finally start making films about the Vietnam War, of course, 
Apocalypse Now was made by Francis Ford Coppola on the back of the success of the Godfather films. Um, it's a it's a war film. It's it, it, but it's not a propagandist war film. I wouldn't say he's kind of weird ransom whatever as Kurtz who is talking about the ones of people chopping off babies' arms and whatever, and a kind of atavistic nativist thing going on. But also you have the Martin Sheen character who, because at the start of the film is completely. You know, the only thing he can do is go back to war. It's the only thing he wants to do. So, um, and in that, you have the fact that Coppola, he tried to make a deal with the American army um, about getting you know, hardware and whatever, because in order to make a war film, you've got to have all the equipment and whatever. And they said, no, but this is this is anti-patriotic. We're not backing, we're not going to support you in this. So that's why he had to go to the Philippines. I mean, not so critical of um, American values. I mean, Again, one of the lines in Apocalypse Now is that you know, every, inside of every ch- member of Charlie or whatever is an American trying to get out, you know, that kind of situation where that's not the kind of thing you would have had even 10 years earlier, you know, where, again, they were largely making films about World War Two, you know, and again, I'd say Dirty Dozen perhaps is one of the most critical ones, but even that, at the end of the day, there's still it's Marvin and Charles Bronson killing the Germans and Jim Brown blowing them up and whatever else as well. Could I ask when you start to see criticism for the first time of the American government or any type of government in general of its own nation, like a, a, a film that comes out, when does that start happen? Well, you could say as early as the 1920s and 1930s. I mean, Warner's makes a number of films that are social value films, social conscience films. So uh, I was a fugitive from the chain gang with Paul Muni, which actually was written by or actually ghostwritten by Daryl F. Zanuck, who's the head of production on that point at Warner's. So you can certainly see that they had the social conscience film. Uh, you can also see that Zanuck, particularly, was somebody, again, who produced films, often directed by people like John Ford. So very famously, he produced the biopic of um, Lincoln, but also more famously, he also built uh, the, 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 um, the film on the... Henry Fonda was in as well about the Okies. Um, name, it's, it's sometimes the senior moments. Um, the uh, John Ford made it. It was based on the, the novel. Again, I, I can say this. Anyway, so it's about the whole idea that again about the Great Depression. It's one of the, the greatest films about the Great Depression, which should come to me at some point. Um, and again, those films. And John Ford was, you know, in the nineteen thirties. Often was arguing very much at that point, he was seen to be going through these kind of liberal political phase as well. So he was making a number of films that were critical of those in power. But you can also see Fritz Lang, who was a famous German filmmaker. The first film he makes when he comes to America is Fury. And Fury is about a lynching. And Spencer Tracy's character survives a lynching. Uh, and though it ends up with a happy ending of Spencer Tracy getting together uh, with Sylvia Street and whatever. The situation is that um, he, at one point, there's the, the the trial demonstrating again how you could these people could be whipped up into a frenzy, which you know has a certain resonance to modern day American politics, to put it mildly. Um, so, even though the big kind of you know Hollywood um, studios were largely making you know films for, as it was called, Warners would say, making good films for good citizens, as it were, or good pictures for good citizens. Um, you would even see that even during that period of time, there were certainly a number of filmmakers who and um, people who were writing and directing films that were more critical and perhaps more 
cynical of American political power. Some are Frank Capra as well. I mean, certainly Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Um, it appears at one point Mr. Smith has been blackened by the whole of the American media, even though he's the good guy. Uh, and also, even It's a Wonderful Life, there's the alternative version of George Bailey's hometown, which becomes Pottersville, which demonstrates again what would happen if the industrious had had complete power, if he hadn't, if George Bailey had never lived. And it's, it's this kind of film noir kind of nightmare as well. In the 50s, you can also see a number of films which have, again, certain kind of critical analysis of what's going on as well. And then it kind of, I say, goes into full mushrooming, I suppose, in the late 60s, with you have Haskell Wexler making a film which was set in the Chicago riots called Medium Call, which is about a cameraman who, you know, ends up in the middle of the Chicago riots. And um, it's all about his relationship with television and things like that as well. Um, and even as the line where Wexler is behind the camera saying, hacks will get out of the way, they're using real bullets. And I suppose then you have the most archetypical kind of version of this in things like Easy Rider, which has the whole kind of countercultural position. And you have particularly the Jack Nicholson character who articulates a very critical analysis of American justice and also concepts of American freedom. Can I ask about what the films were like during the counterculture movement? I mean, was there suppression? Was there a voice that was actually being able to be heard? I'm a big kind of like I've t spoken to Abe Peck, who was a part of the Chicago Sea during the counterculture, like 60s and 70s. So I'm, I'm that's a large area of interest to me is how the counterculture kind of reacted with society a little bit, too. I mean, they magazines, underground press, all these types of things that are coming out. I was wondering if Hollywood was actually giving an accurate depiction or giving them a voice in a sense, or was they still being shunned? Well, this and you have to understand this. There's two kind of Hollywoods going on in the 1960s. The new Hollywood. Hollywood. Tell me the new Hollywood. The new Hollywood emerges out of, firstly, I suppose, what you call the movie brats. They're slightly later on. They're people coming out of the film schools. Coppola, George Lucas. Spielberg, who doesn't go to the film schools, but he's part of the whole movement. Brian De Palma, John Milius, Paul Schrader. Um, but also, in terms of counterculture, yes, you do. But that counterculture is largely working what we describe as B movies. So, and the king of the B movies at the time is a man called Roger Corman, you may be aware of. Roger Corman made a whole range of horror movies, and he employed people like Francis Coppola, Peter Bogdanovich, uh, Martin Scorsese to make the films, Jonathan Demme. Also, in terms of people in front of the camera, he employed Jack Nicholson, I've mentioned about. Jack Nicholson was also a filmmaker. He wasn't just a, uh, an actor. He was a writer. Also, Jack Nicholson wrote The Trip, which was a film which stopped Peter Fonda taking an LSD trip. Um, and that was also where Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper got together. And so I suppose Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda ultimately co-wrote uh, and produced and directed Easy Rider, which um, even for all its faults, is the kind of ar most archetypical countercultural film and was a, a film that suddenly showed to old Hollywood, <laughs> it had been produced by new Hollywood, literally, because uh, Bert Schneider was a son of Harold Schneider, who was, Bert Schneider was the producer of Easy Rider. 
And his father was a, an executive at Columbia. And this film, from a tiny budget of something like $350,000, made $100 million or something, something equivalent at that time. Something was completely broke, you know, all records, basically, of a, such a small production. Um, and something in counterculture for about a three or four year period was the in vogue. So you have films like Monty Hellman's Two Lane Blacktop. Um, you have uh, Fonda's, uh, he, he makes a kind of countercultural Western, which He's in with Warren Oates as well. Um, there's a whole range of different kind of what we might describe as kind of countercultural actors like Nicholson I've mentioned is very much the hardest. Could I ask about more about the Hayes Code? Um, this is an area I've touched upon in previous episodes, but it's been something like, did that come out of McCarthyism? Did there become a... a okay, okay. Uh, you have to say the Hayes Code back to uh, 1930. Oh, so before McCarthyism. It's well before McCarthyism. And McCarthyism, bear in mind, we talk about the blacklist, but McCarthyism is a generic term for the Red Scare of the 1950s. And McCarthy himself, just to, and then I'll move on to the Hayes Code, McCarthy was only really involved in the investigation of uh, the State Department and institutions of government. We claimed there were subversives and Reds under the beds and whatever. Uh, the important committee in uh, politics for uh, Hollywood, the House Committee of Un-American Activities. And McCarthy couldn't have been in that because he was an, he was a senator as well, so he was in the upper house. Um, okay, the Hayes Code, right. Okay, well, it's the production code is its real name. Uh, I guess the term of the Hayes Code was Will Hayes, I think I mentioned to you when I was introducing some of his ideas, was in charge of the trade lobby, the motion picture and uh, distribution agency, I think it was called at the time, which was Hollywood's kind of basically kind of main voice in Washington and also was representative of trade matters as well. Problems started emerging because the Catholic Legion of Decency, a whole range of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant organisations start seeing Hollywood as being the bastion of all things wrong in terms of American public life. And they see that what the films that Hollywood are making as morally uh, um, sort of problematic for um, the wider notion of a, a, a moral society. So there's a kind of religious factor to it. There's also, one would have to say, an un undoubted anti-Semitism factor going on as well. A lot of these people are very, very anti-Jewish. They equate, of course, Hollywood Judaism. And of course, they see that the showbiz people are coming out of that kind of history. And again, they're seeing this as being a mechanism through which to undermine white American Christian values, however you want to describe them. So there's that situation. And Hollywood itself also, because there's a downturn in production, the introduction of sound is expensive. And also we starting to see the start, the implication of 1929's and the Great Depression. So people aren't going out to watch films, even though it's a relatively inexpensive thing to do. Um, the cinema attendances start declining. Well, two things are going to sell, and Hollywood's not, you know, as always, like everything else, like the Bible, you have sex and violence, right? And from 19, the early sound films, particularly from about 1930 to certainly 1933, are quite sexually explicit. You have also women who are utilizing their lack of virtues for getting on, and they're not being done and downed for that situation. Uh, you have the rise of the gangster picture. Admittedly, every gangster has to die at the end, but everything about the gangster film, who the actors in it, James Stewart, uh, James Cagney, 
um, Edward G. Robinson. These are dynamic figures. They're attractive figures. Paul Muni plays in Scarface, which was Howard Hawks' film, which was produced by Howard Hughes, or based on Al Capone. So this becomes an increasing dynamic. And Hollywood starts from also having to deal with also the fact that um, Hollywood, in terms of America, has 50 different states to have to deal with, which all have their own different censorship boards. Alongside those censorship boards in every state, there's also censorship boards in every city. And it sometimes gets down to every kind of, you know, kind of region or parish or whatever. The situation is going to be extremely expensive or not being shown at all. So again, bottom line, product is always a factor. So you've got to bear that in mind that they are doing this because they recognize that their products will not be shown as much as they're doing it for any kind of assumed moral responsibility. Although Mayer and others talk about, yes, we understand our, our greater moral responsibilities for the greater good of the country. And this is part of our patriotism and whatever. So the Hayes Code comes in and it's the production code. It colloquially is known as the Hayes Code. Will H. Hayes is the man responsible as the main author of it. The Hayes Code has a number of significant restrictions particularly over representations of sex, adultery, um, sex certainly out of wedlock is something. Um, there's also this extraordinary thing where it appears that most Hollywood actors and actresses live in bedrooms two separate beds. Um, violence is another factor, although less actually an issue. Um, so you can slightly see from 1933 onwards, and the Hays Code starts becoming religiously applied by a man called Joseph Breen, and Joseph Breen has a very strong, again, Catholic moral position. He's an Irish Catholic. He's very, very right-wing. Doesn't like any kind of... Really, also, other things he doesn't like is representation of things like labour rights and things like that. Also, Hollywood occasionally will make a film, bizarre enough, there is a few films made by this about the Spanish Civil War. And again, there's a film called Blockade that, again, the Hayes Code comes in and, and significantly either cuts... But also, it can cut up a variety of different parts of it. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, isn't most billionaires most most billionaires back then were kind of anti labor? It seems like it seems like that's how they became fucking billionaires. Uh, Howard Hughes, Walt Disney, they were all anti labor unions. Yeah, yeah, and this man I've talked about, William Randolph Hearst, as well. Yeah, I mean, and they were the power the power players, in it. Yeah, I mean, and, and also the other factor. Uh, which I mentioned to you was this um, campaign. It takes place just after the Hayes Code is being brought in in 1934. Uh, the man's called Upton Sinclair. And Upton Sinclair was a social reformer. And he managed to get on the Democratic government ticket for the 1934 election, which is quite extraordinary because he was a socialist. So he had a socialist agenda, which was end poverty in California, or EPIC. And the big fear by Mayer, Fautberg, and Hearst and others, because Hearst had financial interest in Hollywood. I don't know if Cal Hughes was involved, he might well have been as well, was that you've got to stop this guy, Sinclair, uh, you know, Upton Sinclair. The way you do it is you blacken him. So there's two different financial ways to do this. Firstly, they bring in what's called the so-called Merriam charge on employees. That referred to Frank Merriam, the Republican opponent. And every member of the studios, in terms of their employment, had to had a certain amount they paid opt in terms of um, going, money going into that campaign, right? So they have the MGM, they have the Columbia. The young Billy Wilder, who was an escapee from Nazi Germany, said, 
I came to Hollywood for this. You know, I've come to the whole idea that I've come to a democratic society. Because on one side, it was what a brilliant idea. On the other side, what is this, you know? Um, the other side was also to use what were called uh, California newsreels as well, where uh, a supposedly anonymous Californian news reporter went up and down the state reporting about supposedly um, you know, non-biasedly, if such a term exists, or certainly independently and impartially about the issue, about what the issues were about the 1934 government campaign. On one of these news is famously a whole load of dodgy characters, itinerants, bums and whatever, um, people who are going to sup off the state, if you want to call it like that, um, who come in and are shown to be coming in off trains and, and invading California. Um, what in reality was actually, this was a film that was taken from a Warner Brothers film, um, which was a film about such people, such itinerants, but it was a feature film. So they brought that in and also you get various kind of gap to bums, as it were, saying, oh, I like this man Sinclair. He says he's what, what happens in the Soviet Union should happen in California. It's as unsubtle as that, basically. But it works, you see, because, I mean, Merriam wins the campaign. Um, Absent Sinclair is booted out. Oh, he wasn't booted in because he wasn't in. And he had support from people like Charlie Chaplin and James Cagney at the time. Um, and so I suppose there's not only just a kind of moral censorship, but there's also this also there's always this question about political censorship as well. Because going further into the blacklist era, of course, a lot of the concern was also about the type of films that were being made were actually having subversive messages which anti-American within them as well. So, yeah, you, I mean, and again, people say, oh my God, the, the smoke and mirrors of Trump or whatever and all these modern politicians, but the reality is that you go back to the 1930s and you will find equally as devious and problematic issues. And Frederick March, the actor, had a row with Ivan Falberg, and Falberg had actually been a socialist orator as a boy um, in, um, you know, as in, in, in the teeming kind of Jewish section of uh, New York. And uh, he said, well, nothing is unfair in politics. So, you know, um, so that, that, that was, um, that, that, that again demonstrated, that said, the, the moguls were very, very hard based, you know, they, and they knew also that they had to appeal, as I say, there was a certain notion of fears of anti-Semitism, but there was also a notion that they, they had their own interests to protect as well. Could I ask about some of the production offices, like when we talk about Warner Brothers Studios, like how much influence they had over people? I mean, the two of the people you named, Chaplin, and then you named Cagney, both those, if I'm not mistaken, were part of the Hollywood 10, or at least part of the blacklist in some no, sense. Of the word. No, no, they weren't. Chaplin no. was. Um, no, Chaplin wasn't. Chaplin was refused return of to America because they refused to issue with him, uh, issue his passport. Um he had never become an American citizen, so he left in 1952. He only came back in 1971 to get the special Oscar. Um, Chaplin was a fellow traveller, undoubtedly. Jimmy Cagney had been put in front of what was called the Dees Committee, which was in 1938. Um, and he had famously his, what he described as his two-shirt uh, two theory. He said, why would, I have, uh, why would I lose one shirt if I've got another shirt? Uh, I like the capitalist system. Yes, I believe in justice, equality, and fairness, good American values, but I'm not a, there's no way I'm a, I'm a communist. What happens after 1945 46 is, as I say, this reinstatement of that House Committee of Un American Activities. And it becomes much more powerful because it becomes a permanent committee 
and also the, uh, the actual composition of Congress changes to a very, very right wing in the 1946 election, I think. And it's then chaired by a man called J. Parnell Thomas. And he decides to go, he's got a number of different areas in public life to look at, but Hollywood is the best one. I mean, Hollywood is the most glamorous system, it's got the best looking people. And if you can prove subversion in Hollywood, my God, you know, you're, you're, you're made basically. So he then decides that he's going to root out communism within Hollywood with a number of other people, including Richard Nixon, who's involved for a short period of time. Uh, who was a congressman of, I think, Southern California at the time. And they decided to go after what are known communists. And there are known communists. There's a genuine Hollywood Communist Party exists. It was formulated in the 1930s. A lot of the writers who I mentioned who came in for the sound were very left-wing or liberal. A lot of them went into things like the, um, you know, the, the um, again, sort of things for Spanish Civil War, uh, popular front movements, things like that, anti-Nazi situations, anti-fascist organisations as well. Yes, there were a lot of people who then segued into communism, or there were people who were communists from the get-go. There was a man called John Howard Lawson, a writer, who wrote this film Blockade I talked about. He was he was an out-communist. Out he had no compunction about it. Um, and was even, I think, fired by Columbia Studios for his political affiliations. Um, so they go after... Ultimately, set about 15 people. It gets boiled down to 10. There are 10 Hollywood communists who are then put in front of Congress. And they include some top names. Dalton Trumbull, I've mentioned, who later on writes Spartacus and Exodus, but also had also won an Oscar for, twenty, I think, 20 seconds over uh, um, Tokyo or something like that. Um, it was a big, big name. You had um, Adrian Scott, a producer, who made a film called Crossfire with his production partner, Edward Dimitrik, who was also on it, the only director on it, which had been a very big popular success, which was about people returning after World War II, about anti-Semitism and things like that as well. Um, so you had a number of, as uh, Ring Lardner Jr., who would later on write MASH, uh, was the son of the famous sports um, journalist as well. Um, and Albert Maltz, who had been, again, a very popular writer, uh, very uh, successful. A lot of them were writers, as I say, and writers all produced predominantly. And those 10 are taken in front of Congress, and Parnell Thomas basically says, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Now, their argument is saying, well, I have a perfect right to be a member of whatever party under the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, freedom of movement, freedom of ideas and whatever. Um, so freedom of political affiliation is part of my fundamental American right, and you're trying to take it away. Parnell Thomas won't have that. And also disastrously, just to add to the publicity of this, there's another organisation called the Committee for the First Amendment, which is organised by John Houston. Its most famous member was Humphrey Bogart. They go to a famous trip to Washington, along with people like Danny Kaye and others. And... Unfortunately, the very day they're in, John Howard Lawson is doing his testimony, which is basically saying, I've always been a communist, you know, um, and you're, you're not going to get me in this situation uh, saying anything different. But the, the subsidiary question, of course, which they won't go on, which is they, you know, why they've declared a fifth amendment, saying, well, if you're a communist, who else has been? And that's the whole thing about the naming of names, you see, that, and that's the whole thing that the, the Hollywood tends to say, well, we might be communists, but we're not rats. We're not going to tell you anybody else. So they're deemed to be in contempt of Congress, and they are in, being in contempt of Congress, they go to prison. Uh, all the Hollywood ten uh, serve some form of custodial sentence. One reneges, that's the director, Edward Dimitrik, and says it was wrong, and he starts naming names. 
Um, there's also another irony that James Parnell, J. Parnell Thomas, he has been taking bribes and he ends up in prison with Ring Lardner Jr. They're very personally sent there. So you've got this situation. So that's the first tranche. And they have what's called the Waldorf Hotel meeting. All the moguls meet with the uh, head of what was the, what, what at that point was. It wasn't called the Motion Picture Association, but that's what was called Eric Johnston. And they say, right, anybody we know who is basically involved in any kind of suspicious organization or front organization, they will be put on either a black or a gray list. Uh, and they're on a blacklist, they're completely unemployable. On a gray list, there may be you know, some sort of movement and wavering. And again, there's a reinformation of this in terms of the House Committee of American Activities in the early 1950s. And then this is where the confusion says because by that point, McCarthy is at full pelt. In 1950, makes his infamous speech about so many reds in the beds in the State Department. But the 1950s um, HUAC hearings, staff of a man called Larry Parks, who'd been in the Jolson story, and the Jolson rides again, and a whole range of different actors and people who were fellow travellers, people like Lee J. Hop and others, who are basically faced with, uh, you know, Hobson's choice, is it? If you don't commit, if you don't confess, you're basically blacklisted. If you do confess, then you've got to basically rat out other people. Now, the most infamous and famous character in that period of time is the director, Elia Kazan. And Elia Kazan, who had been, again, an active communist, had been part of the group theatre in the 1930s and 40s, but became a very famous filmmaker in the 1940s. He made... He, a best picture making film, uh, Gentleman's Agreement. He started off also, he, he was a man very responsible for the early Marlon Brando films like Viva Zapata, um, also Streetcar Named Desire. He decides when he's basically um, subpoenaed in front of the committee that he will name names. And he says, I've done this, not because I've had my, my concept of friendship is my loyalty to my country overwhelms my concept of friendship. Well, a lot of people weren't very happy about that and said if he'd actually not name names, he could have stopped the things he was such a big name to go after. And his best friend um, at the time was Arthur Miller. And Arthur Miller and, and um, Elijah said, we're going to make a film about dock workers in, in uh, the New Jersey, New York um, docks. Um, and Miller said, I can't possibly work with you. And Miller later on had his passport revoked because, again, he wasn't prepared to name names. Um, and that... Ultimately, then Kazan went to another person who had been an informant and former communist man called Bud Schulberg to write the screenplay of what became On the Waterfront, which is a very famous film called Starling Marlon Brando. And On the Waterfront is about ostensibly union corruption, but of course On the Waterfront is also takes the side of the person who is the stool pigeon. So Terry Malloy, played by Marlon Brando, his whole heroic position of standing up against the corruption is that he has been prepared to go to the Crime Commission and to become a witness after his girlfriend's brother gets killed and things like that as well. So that kind of, as I say, is where you go with, the, with that kind of thing, as it were. And again, a lot of that originally comes out of, as I say, union politics, because a lot of the hardline kind of anti-communist people, notably like Ronald Reagan, who, of course, Ronald Reagan was in charge of the Screen Actors Guild at the time, um, Transform their values and went from becoming kind of liberal Democrats into kind of hardline neighbors and Republicans of the early 1960s. And the person who basically schools him in that is a man called Roy M. Brewer, who was the um, hardline anti communist trade unionist of uh, one of the big unions called the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees, or IATSE. And Brewer um, goes in, in and, and basically 
solicits various people to ensure that they will, as I say, um, enforce other people to go up in front of the um, the commission as well. So there's Brewer. There's also a man uh, called Ward Bond. Now, Ward Bond, you may know better as John Wayne's best friend and also appeared in tons of John Wayne, John Ford movies. Um, usually as a sidekick or even sometimes an oppositional force. But um, so Ward Bond, again, uses his, his, he has very kind of strong, again, Irish-American affiliations, a very strong kind of notions about what is good and bad in terms of politics and left and right politics. And he uses, again, his power base to determine who should be on the blacklist or who should be not on the blacklist as well. But there's also some appalling discrepancies that some people who shouldn't be on the blacklist find themselves on it. Um, the um, Paul Heinrich, uh, the actor in Casablanca, who's the guy who's Ingmar Ber Ingrid, who Ingrid Bergman's husband, is the other part of the triangle in Casablanca. He finds himself for no apparent reason blacklisted because they make a mistake and think that he, he being a, a Lutheran, um, churchgoer, he, uh, you know, very kind of straightforward kind of person. But they say, no, no, he's, he's, he's involved in some sort of front organisation. So you have a, a lot of those kind of things going on. There's also, I mean, it's interesting as well, because you don't just have the federal level, you also have the, the state level of this going on as well. So in um, um, American, uh, in Californian politics, you have the state level going on as well. Um, so you have a, a state level act as well and there's also as there are in any kind of witch hunt period there's also extraordinary people declaring all manner of things and thousands of people going to see kind of people who are no names who suddenly declare that that so and so is a is, is a red under the bed so even most right-wing people like gary cooper are being accused at certain points which is quite extraordinary because gary cooper was what would was deemed to be a friendly witness um i would like to ask more about when it comes to the, per, I mean, I would uh, the actors. You, I, I thought Chaplin was on the blacklist, but if he's not on the blacklist, when we talk about the number of people that might have had political views that felt like their career was more important, so they had to put them on the back burner because they knew that they would be blacklisted. Well, there's, I mean, there's a number. There's a number. Yeah, there's a number of people. Um, and what these people largely have to do, both actors, directors, and also writers, is either they go and find other jobs. There's a man called Lionel Stander, who you might know from a um, TV series called Heart to Heart. Have you ever seen that? It's made in the 1970s with Robert Wagner. Lionel Stander played Max, the jovial kind of chauffeur character. Lionel Stander was a very important left-wing figure. Um, Grandpa Walton, Will Gear. Um, again, do you, you ever see the Waltons? The... Uh, the film, the series set in the Depression in the 1970s. Well, Will Gear again was a, 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 he was a very important figure for lots of different reasons. He had lots of strong relationships with also people like Pete Seeger and people like that. So you can also get musicians who also end up being blacklisted as well, particularly kind of folk revivalist kind of characters like Seeger. Woody Guthrie doesn't happen because unfortunately he has this terrible illness. Um, so they don't go after him. Um, so you have that. Uh, there was um, an actor director who went to Britain called Sam Wanamaker, and Sam Wanamaker became better known eventually for developing the um, the Rose Theatre. I think it is for the Shakespearean Theatre on the South Bank of the Thames. Um, and he would appear in all sorts of things just to get money for that, including Arnold Schwarzenegger films and whatever else as well. Um, so there's a whole history which you can find of people who um, 
lost their careers and had to either leave and go abroad or had to go and totally change their careers for a period of time and then re-emerge, as it were, back in when the, when the blacklist is, starts to succeed back in the early 1960s, basically. Um, also, an actress, um, Lee Grant, who I think is still alive. Um, now, her, her situation is quite extraordinary because she was never a communist. And she said, I was like a party girl. Um, in terms of a, not party, in terms of a political party, but like party partying kind yeah. of girl. Um, <laughs> yeah, I gotcha. she, 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 she married some, I can't remember who her husband was, who was, who was accused of being a communist. So because Lee Grant wasn't prepared to accuse him, she got blacklisted. So she had an early start in a film called Detective Story, a film with Kirk Douglas, and she played that on the play. William Wyler made it as it was a stage play, which was then made into a film. And Lee Grant was blacklisted till uh, the mid 1960s. Well, she, she she basically said I was I was completely unemployable for about 12 years in Hollywood, um, and then I literally they, they they removed the blacklist. And like one day I was unemployable, the next day I I, I was flooded for offers basically. How big of a monopoly is it that they can be able to blacklist you from not even one person was like, yeah, we'll put you in a movie, but you literally everything. You couldn't get a job. It was a terrible situation. I mean, as I said, there was this triumvirate of Brewer, Ward Bond, and this, also this lawyer called Martin Gang, I think his name was. Or something. And they were the ones responsible for determining whether people were on a blacklist or whatever. And they also would say, right, okay, if you go in front of the, if you're subpoenaed, an actor or director or that person in Hollywood would say, well, what do I have to do? And they'd say, right, if you name this set of names, that's it, you'll be off, basically. If you're not prepared, right? No, no. If you're not, that's it. You're not going to get. You're not going to get work again. So, there's a number of people who felt very, very bad about it. The, the I suppose one of the biggest names was Sterling Hayden, and Sterling Hayden had again been, you know, very kind of. He, he, he was developing as a leading man, and then he was presented with this. And Ronald Reagan apparently persuaded Sterling Hayden to go in front of the the House Committee of Un-American Activities, Sterling Hayden felt very, very bad about it. So he, some people argue his alcoholism, and I, you know, I think he was an alcoholic anyhow, but he, he certainly had a kind of chronic alcoholism, which he felt such shame and guilt about what he did. And Sterling Hayden was, an, as his physical specimen, was an enormous man who was in, subsequently he showed up in Stanley Kubrick films like The Killing and Doctor Strangelove and things like that. And also was in The Godfather. He's Captain um, McCluskey, isn't it? The one Pacino shoots in the, the famous shootout, uh, the one who breaks Pacino's jaw. That's Sterling Hayden. He was one of, but he, he was somebody who felt very, very, very chronically bad about it, you know, was shamed, had shame about it. Others like Kazan went to their deathbed saying, I have got nothing to be shameful for. And of course, Kazan, there's an extraordinary period in 1999, which again demonstrates the kind of political divisions in Hollywood, even though. And why it's largely a left liberal situation, although it's always been right wing and continues to be right wing people in it, is that Kazan was offered by Carl Morden because Carl Morden had been a big method actor with Kazan in On the Waterfront and A Streetcar Named Desire and various other stage productions as well. Um, and he said, right, Kazan deserves an honorary all time, you know, lifetime achievement award. So Scorsese and De Niro were happy enough to present it, but lots of people um, were very, very against this. And there was huge demonstrations outside of wherever the plaza was, wherever they, I, I think by that point, they were having the Kodak theater. I don't know if it was still either there or the Dory fee, whatever plaza or whatever. Um, but Kazan 
uh, accepted the award. And what happened was you had some people standing, including like left liberal people like Warren Beatty, because Gazan had worked with Beatty and created his young career. You had other people like Ed Harris, the actor, refusing to stand up and not applaud or anything. And you had Steven Spielberg sitting down but applauding, taking the middle ground, basically. Um, so it's kind of, again, you have to bear in mind that despite the fact that a lot of these things have been moved on from, they have a kind of folk memory in the Hollywood political complexion as well. Was there general awareness amongst the people and other actors that there was this code or this type of way that Hollywood runs? Um, well, it was. I mean, again, it didn't just affect Hollywood. It affected all parts of American life. So you look at... Um, yeah, but did most people have communist views or did most people be sympathetic openly to, about the Communist Party? Well, I mean, again, the things you've got to remember, we're living in times which change very, very dramatically. In the interwar period, though uh, it was, there was always been a strong strand of anti-communism, which goes back to what's called the Palmer Raids of 1919 in America. There were a lot of people who were very, very anti-fascist, and they saw with alarm what was going on in Italy and Germany, and also they saw what was going on in Spain, and a lot of people joined those causes. Now, some people went further and became communists. There was a, there was a man, a writer called Donald Ogden Steers, who wrote the Philadelphia story, he became a active communist in the back on his joining. Other people perhaps already were communists. They were part of the pro. Uh, they were, they were, it was a minority, remember. It's a very small number of people. But Hollywood being Hollywood and how, attracting particularly kind of left-leaning writers and things like that, what were often called poolside reds was the term. Um, so they didn't mind all the trappings of Hollywood. They all lived in houses with pools and whatever, but they had a, a strong affiliation of public causes and public work. Then you've got liberal people like John Houston, William Wyler, Humphrey Bogart and others who were, you know, again, prepared to lend their names to causes. There was also actors like Robert Ryan. The actor Robert Ryan was a very, very strong liberal um, and was in, involved in lots of causes as well. Um, so there was, there, was a, there was a whole different kind of complexion. But again, the film Oppenheimer, I don't know if you've seen, have you seen it? Again, if, if you can bring down Robert Oppenheimer as being a subversive, um, you can bring down anybody. I mean, Robert Upham was the father of the atomic bomb. So you've got to remember the forces of the state, the Louis Strauss's, well, he wasn't working against Hollywood, but these people were very, very powerful people. And also you had other people making political careers out of this. You know, Ronald Reagan makes his political career. How, how does he start off? He starts off as a screen actor, a B actor largely. He gets into some A films, but never really makes it. In terms of, he's a Warner contract player. He makes it as a, as, a, as a trade unionist. He's a very effective trade unionist, but he's also somebody who becomes politically educated as he would see during this period of time. And this leads him onto track, of course, of going to become a right-wing hawkish Republican, become the governor of California and ultimately the president. Now, a person, someone like Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon is making his name about as anti-commist. Uh, he is taking down in the American State Department called Alger Hisson as well. Richard Nixon had even run a campaign that wasn't directly against Hollywood. In 1950, he was running as the governor. It was, it was even the senatorial campaign, excuse me. He was running against one for Helen Gagan Douglas, Melvin Douglas's wife. And he's always suggested it was also Franklin Delano Roosevelt's mistress. And she was an actress, she'd been an actress, and she'd gone into politics. And um, 
he ran a campaign. It was a very good book about it called Nixon versus the Pink Lady. And Nixon's line was, she's pink even down to her underwear. So you've got to remember, and again, there's something, a man called Donald Ritchie, who is actually a Republican, but he wrote, he's written a very good and interesting book called When Hollywood Was Right. There was also people like Cecil B. DeMille demanding loyalty oaths and things like that as well. So you had strong power brokers politically, but also institutionally in the kind of, we want to describe the permanent governance of Hollywood and the moguls and, as I say, others like Eric Johnston and others who were working actively to promote this kind of blacklist system as well. And this was something they were very conscious of doing. Now, the moguls are doing this, obviously, from lots of times from bottom line. And also, they're in this period of time, as I mentioned to you, after World War II, the Paramount decree is coming, which breaks down their power over the monopolization of the Hollywood products. But also television is coming as well, which is their big fear as well. So anything they see is derisory to their product, including communism, which they think is not going to sell to the American public, who are now affluent and wealthy and living extraordinarily developed, you know, incredible like, like local wealth positions. Everybody's got two cars, everybody's living in the suburbs. That situation, you know, it's never been so good, basically. It's the affluent societies John Kenneth Galbraith talks about. Um, so they're looking at that and going, my God, we, we don't want the audience we've got, we don't want to lose known we've got known communists on, on, on the situation as well. A very good person who's an illustrator of this, who starts off being very kind of uh, sympathetic, as it were, to the communist cause is Frank Sinatra. And um, there's an extraordinary book written by a Trotskyist called When Old Blue Eyes Is a Red, which is a piece of nonsense. But there is a situation that Frank Sinatra, when he was knocking around, you mentioned the Kennedys. Sinatra, Sinatra is going to make a film about a man called Eddie Slovak. He was the only soldier to be um, court-martialed and shot in World War II, right? They're, they're, and anyway, so the person who's going to get to write that film was Albert Maltz, who was part of the Hollywood 10, okay? So... He's going to produce this film as well, like it's in his production company. But when Sinatra is he's confronted by Joe Kennedy, he says to Sinatra, "If you want to do John a favor, you won't make this film. You won't make this film, and you specifically won't make a film based on an Albert Malt screenplay." Uh, so the film get Sinatra backs off and doesn't make the film basically. Um, so again, it demonstrates again that the powers that be were involved in this situation. But there was a number of embarrassments as well, which took place. Dalton Trumbo wins uh, a Best Writer's Oscar for a film called The Brave One. And The Brave One, he'd written under a pseudonym, and nobody shows up to pick up the statue for The Brave One. I think it's 1954. But the biggest one of this is 1957, in The Bridge on the River Kwai. The Bridge on the River Kwai starring Alec Guinness, William Holden, Jack Hawkins and others about, you know, the building of the bridge on the Burmese Railway and everything. And that is written ostensibly from a book by a French author called Pierre Bull, um, but was actually written by two blacklisted writers, Michael Wilson and Carl Foreman. Carl Foreman would later be known for doing Guns of Navarone and things like that. However, Sam Spiegel decides and Columbia decide that they can't have two blacklisted names on the, the uh, credits of this film. So they decide to give the credit to Pierre Bull, now, original author. But how we come around to the Oscars, 
Brings the best adapted screenplay. Pierre Bull for his own adaptation of his novel, rather than the actual two real screenwriters, Michael Wilson and um, and Carl Foreman. And it was only about 30 years later that the families of Wilson and Foreman managed to get Columbia to change the credit and give them a posthumous credit on an original required, which was an enormously successful film. And this happens again, Paul of Michael Wilson happens again on Lawrence of Arabia as well, which of course was also produced by Spiegel, directed by David Lean. Michael Wilson writes the original screenplay of Lawrence of Arabia, which the, screen act, uh, the Screenwriters Guild, excuse me, would declare that he has to get credit for, because that's the arbitration rulings. However, when it comes to the film being shown in the early 1960s, even though the blacklist is now breaking down, uh, Spiegel takes a decision, um, only Robert Bolt will get the, the credit for Lawrence of Arabia. And against Robert Bolt wins the Best Adapted Screenplay Award for Lawrence of Arabia. So Wilson's family, again, have to, through various means, have to kind of advocate for him posthumously, largely, uh, because he has to get the credit and also he has to get a joint Oscar for it's an Oscar winning screenplay, you know. So you have a number of these situations taking place, which means so, so the blacklist becomes it, it's something also it's because difficult to operate as well, I, I would say, because you start having this, the, the, the situation talents will out, as it were. Going back to Dalton Trumbo, Dalton Trumbo is going to have to write under a pseudonym, I think it was Sam. Something like Sam Jackson, which is kind of right now as well, with Samuel L. Jackson. Um, and he was going to get that credit for Spartacus. And Spartacus is Kirk Douglas's kind of huge production. I mean, it, it, there's a joke that Peter Ustoff made that, that when he was on the film, that his daughter was asked, What did his father, what did her father do? And she said, Spartacus, because he'd been on the film for so long. And the screenplay credit, theory comes up. Kirk Douglas says, I want to give it to, I want to give it as an outstanding screenplay to credit for Dalton Trumbo. Kubrick is a bit devious in this. Kubrick says, no, why don't you give me the writer and director the hyphenate credit? Dorsey would like that on a massive epic, even though he declares subsequently he doesn't like the film or anything like that as well. Uh, eventually the film comes out with Dalton Trumbo's name on it. And this is also where the blacklist probably does break down. Even though Dalton Trumbo, ironic enough, his name had appeared on Exodus by Otto Preminger's film about the formation of, of the Israeli state. I have to ask you, it's kind of like a final question here, but through all the research that you have done about Hollywood, I mean, you've accumulated a wealth of information. Um, definitely going to have to have you back on to discuss some other areas as well. But have you have a different perspective? I mean, you probably have balanced from like, I mean, at least through my research of the 60s and 70s and diving into like the Fred Hampton assassination and so much other things, I found myself being very, very mad at the government, then kind of being like, okay, well, I don't know, but then mad again and then mad again, and then kind of like this back and forth balance where if you look at like Hollywood and look at the shifts and changes, you're kind of looking at like, well, then there was this and then there was this, and you feel a conflict of emotions, I should say. And I wonder if through your, through your research, have you kind of felt like this at this maybe at this point now where you're kind of like you understand it more from like a historical viewpoint rather than having your emotions put into it? Um, yeah, I suppose because I take I'm coming from an academic, supposedly as objective as you can kind of approach to it. Um, and you've got to understand that what a lot of people forget about Hollywood and films 
there is artistry, there's brilliance and whatever, but there's also commerce. And that will always, um, the bloke I wrote about William Friedkin, when he had, he had success and he had failure, he said, you know, in Hollywood, there's a thousand fathers when something's a success, as failure is an orphan. And the bottom line always remains what drives a lot of what happens in Hollywood. Now, there's people who've been trying try to take that on. And I'd say one of the most noble figures, and he's even trying to take it on now in his 80s, is Francis Ford Coppola. He may have lots of flaws, but he has a genuine belief in artistry and tried to take on the Hollywood studios, and he formed his own studio with George Lucas, actually, in the late 60s, which was an artistic community in San Francisco, which called Zoetrope. And he's always kind of reformulated Zoetrope. And of course, his career is kind of bizarre in one respect. He's had the great successes of his enormous films, like the Godfather films, but he always wanted to make the little films, like the Conversation or whatever, and be the kind of, his big thing was to be the entrepreneur, but the entrepreneur for artistic goodness, as it were and not see it's all about a money-making process. Unfortunately, when he tried to do that in the early 80s, the big Hollywood studios all colluded against him and screwed him, basically. And he made a number of disastrous films via Zoetrope, which maybe weren't that bad, but they were never allowed to found, found their audiences as well. Apocalypse Now was the exception to the rule, basically, because after that, he, he made a film called One from the Heart. So I kind of feel for those kind of people, you know, who, and even Lucas, to some degree, who... It remains an independence, as it were, although he, he did get, he, he went to the dark side, of course, of making extraordinary amounts of money out of Star Wars and whatever. And that's why I find those kind of filmmakers of that kind of period, and you had a number of people who were slightly older, like Sam Peckinpah, Robert Altman and others, who were prepared to make films that were challenging, and they weren't all about just making the bottom line. Yes, they understood there was a, they were part of the financial system, but also, and, and this William Friedkin, you know, made French Connection, the Exorcist, made this from Sorcerer. They are kind of people, I, I, again, I probably give a, a too much of a kind of sort of knight in shining armor kind of respect to, because again, they all have their idiosyncrasies and difficulties and problems with, as people and, and also as, as filmmakers. Um, so I feel that, that artistry versus the commerce narrative, which has always been there, you can go back to Chaplin. Yeah, I mean, why did they form the United Artists? Chaplin, Griffith, and Mary, uh, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks. That was, it was called the lunatics in control of the asylum because the idea was the actors, the writers, and the directors would actually be in control of a studio. Now, that was the whole point why it was called United Artists after all, though, you know, it subsequently got sold and moved on into Trans America and things like that as well. But again, United Artists, if you look at it as a studio, and it's unfortunate demise really with Heaven's Gate, of course, um, that even in the kind of major period of the 50s through to the 80s, it was always making independent productions. So what they would say, the people who ran it, Arthur Krim and Robert Benjamin, I would say, right, okay, here's a million dollars, go off and make a film. If you spend any more from that, we'll be on you because we're accountants. But if you don't, if you make the film or whatever, we'll, we'll release it for you and distribute it for you. And they made some remarkably good films. The Mirish Brothers made their films through it, Billy Wilder. You had um, Martin Scorsese's early films as well. Uh, you had a, a number of uh, Woody Allen people like that. I know he's not, no longer what he once was deemed to be, but you had a number of filmmakers who worked doing that kind of process. Um, so that has always to me been the more interesting thing about how far these people could be independent from the studio system. Um, and again, that goes into politics as well. 
because people, I mean, some, I mean, Jane Fonda, for all her faults, and I think she's got a lot, did seriously get involved in kind of things that you were talking about. You know, she, uh, she, she, I mean, she, I mean, obviously she becomes Hanoi Jane over the stretch of the situation, but also a number of other people, uh, like the guy who was the producer of um, Easy Rider, um, Bert, Christ, what his name? Anyway, again, these were, I mean, they would make documentaries like Hearts and Minds about the Vietnam War, which were very, very critical. They would be involved with the kind of black power movement and people like that as well. So you had a number of people during that period of time who got very, very politicised. Now, I'm not saying that, I mean, you've got a strange, I mean, the weirdest one to me is John Voigt. I don't know if you followed his, uh, you know, Angelina Jolie's husband. I've heard the name. I just, I don't can't think of something he's in. John Voigt was in very, two very famous films called Midnight Cowboy and also Deliverance. I don't know. Oh, I know Deliverance. They're brilliant films. He's the one who actually ultimately, he's the every man who has to survive, as it were. Um, now, John Voight was very, very left-wing. He was very anti-war. He was very kind. And he made a film with Jane Fonda called Coming Home, where he plays a paraplegic um, a Vietnam vet and things like that as well. Now, something must have happened to John Voight in mid-1990s into 2000. He suddenly becomes tub-thumping patriot, uh, starts becoming Republican. Okay, and he played, frankly, he, he did what's the awful film, um, that Michael, oh, Pearl Harbor. He played FDR in Pearl Harbor. And then it seems after that he had he's always been a very strong Zionist as well. So I think nine eleven also must have been the thing that really kind of tipped him over. Now he's you know he's Donald Trump's personal on earth in Hollywood, you know, and uh, he's a very good actor. He's still he's still acting even in his seventies and eighties. He's an excellent actor. He was in that Ray Donovan thing. He was Ray Donovan's dad. If you ever saw that, I don't know if you ever saw that TV series. Ray Donald's the guy who's supposedly meant to be like a kind of minder to the stars of Hollywood and whatever. And John Voight plays his dad as his sort of dodgy criminal who's always causing problems for his son, basically, and the rest of his assorted family. Different strokes for different folks. That's all I got to say. Doesn't sound like but my John cup Boyd of tea. Has, but no, but he's a really good actor. He's been in lots of excellent films. And, but it's something, he was in heat as well. Well, he was in, you know, and he was big pals with De Niro at this time. But him and De Niro can't stand each other now because of their respective political paths and whatever. So, um, it, it's so you, you have some of these, and also James Woods is another one. I don't you know James Woods. Yeah, I know James Woods. Come on now. Once upon a time in America. Yeah. yeah. So James Woods again had some sort of Damascus conversion, and now he's Mr. He's another Trumpist on earth. You know, I don't think this is a guy who's got some ridiculously high IQ. How can he follow Trump? But because they're old white people, that's all they got to do. Um, true, there's, there is an argument. Um, there's certainly, but but James was, was these were bright guys. They, they were independently minded guys. Anyway, maybe they think they are now. I don't know. You know, but, uh, anyway, I mean, I know that's because Trump supposedly is a disruptor. I mean, even one of my heroes, Johnny Johnny Rotten, start became a kind of Trump fan. I have to say, you know. I'm never quite listening to the sex fizzles in the same way ever again now. I'm so glad I believe in like a deep state to the point where I don't have any political party affiliations. I don't care for Biden. I don't care for Trump. I literally am just like, it's all rigged. Mostly because I think if you start looking at like how the FBI ran back then, you're like, this is an agency that didn't roll with the president. I don't don't think you even need deep state rigging of the American political system. You've only got the the two party system in itself is a rigging. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. allow for any other political... Get an independent up there. That's all I'm saying. Well, 
you also, dare I say, there was once, believe it or not, was under the American Socialist Party, which had a million members to it. Uh, didn't last for very long. But it stood in the 1912 um, American presidential election. You got a million votes. There you go. Anyway, I've been, look, I've been, I've been, I've been called a Marxist. I've been called a communist. I've been called a libertarian. I've been called every single political thing. And I could tell you what I actually am. I'm yeah. exhausted because it's just frustrating True. trying to talk and figure anything out. I'm just like, that's why I like sticking in the past because well, I don't have to worry about yeah. modern day stuff. Our political classes haven't helped things as well. They really haven't. You know, they've, they've acted in self interested ways that have allowed this gap in the market that Trump has identified, I think. So anyway, I'm not going to go, I've been writing about no. Trump too much recently. Yeah, let's let's not do that. Uh, <laughs> well, let's, uh, Mark, I want to give you a minute to be able to promote your links. I do appreciate the time that you came onto the show, and I'm going to try and edit this together without any, a whole lot of uh, error issues. We had a bit of a connection problem, but no, I seriously do appreciate the time. I'd love to have you back on again to discuss some other things as well. Okay, but, uh, well that'd be good. Yeah, yeah. Where, where can people find your links? Well, you can find on my, uh, I have a, my university page, London Metropolitan University, I'm Professor Mark Wheeler, you can find me there. Um, there's also um, Google Scholar, you can put me in there, you can find the, the things I've written about. Um, I think I gave you a couple of links as well. Of yeah, you got. I got an Amazon I'll throw in there, and um, anything that, if you, you don't have a Twitter, do you? I do have a Twitter account, but I don't tend to use it very much. Okay. Um, I, um, th this is the most recent book. I don't know if you can see it. It's, called, it's about Sorcerer, which is the film uh, that I was talking about, the William Friedkin film, which came out a couple of years ago as well. Um, again, you can find it on Amazon. Um, so I think those are kind of the, the main things you probably find me on, basically. Okay, and I'll make sure I link all those in the description. Like I said, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show, and thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.